0: All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm here to try to answer, to the best of my ability anyways, your questions about the Bible, Christianity, Jesus, and other related issues. Um, Challenging questions are welcomed. Uh, I actually like those the best, even if I'm not able to always answer them well. I like them anyways. Let's go straight to question number one. This comes from Zach Duncan. And I need my uh, my button here, my, my big red button. Um, and yes, there is a luck dragon on my shirt, and I wanted you to see it, so I moved my microphone. <laughs> Zach Duncan says, based on Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34, did people before the new covenant not have a conscience, innate knowledge of God, and the ability to know right from wrong as we do now? Based on the radical changes that Jesus and the church brought to the world, and God seemingly needing to give people constant special revelation in the Old Testament. Could there be a case for this? Could the need for the cycle of sin, judgment, and repentance, then crying for help and deliverance, be connected to this? All right, Zach, very interesting question. Did they have a conscience? Now, I take this. Now, Okay, listen, some would take Zach's question and... um. Um it is actually kind of an important biblical truth that people do have a conscience. It I say kind of. It's a very important biblical doctrine, Zach, that people have a conscience. And some people would take your question and feel as though it was a threat to the doctrine merely because you're asking the question. And I would, my counsel, my advice would be, let's not do that to Zach. He seems to be asking a very sincere question. He's just looking for clarity and he's trying to understand how to apply and understand scripture. So we're going to do that together. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, let's go straight to the verse that led to your question, which is right here, a passage that speaks of the new covenant um, now this is a super important I could spend all day on it and I won't I'll spend a couple minutes on this question but um, I could spend a lot of time on it The Super important issue is the the idea of the new covenant. This is what Jesus brings in So the old covenant is the law right that this covenant of if you do the right thing Then God will bless you if you do the wrong thing He'll curse you the problem with the old covenant which jeremiah is pointing out is that the people don't want to do the right thing They're they're driven by their internal not their knowledge, but their desires to just keep sinning and keep doing the wrong thing. And the history of Israel shows this pattern, as you say, of, of sinning and um, judgment and repentance and deliverance. So the issue that I want to point out here is, while yes, it says I'll put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, um, I don't think it means, like what we often mean in our current culture, when we say mind and heart, mind, we tend to mean awareness. And heart, we tend to mean like, desires or um, Loves or something like that. So when when it says that God's going to put his law in their minds and hearts I don't think he means that sort of modern Western view I think he he's really speaking with mind and heart language here about their desires exclusively there's not just An issue of awareness. That's that's the problem. It's an issue of desires So that I think would clear clarify your question there. Okay, did people before the new covenant have a conscience? The answer is going to be yeah, they did they had a conscience, they just didn't follow it. See, the, the whole concept of no nobody will be teaching his neighbor saying, know the Lord, as in the information I give you will give you knowledge of God. Instead, God will give them some sort of internal knowledge of him. This is fulfilled in the New Testament. When Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to the church, we, when we become born again, we become saved now, we put our faith in Jesus, we then are filled with the Spirit, and we begin to be changed from the inside out. It's not just that we now know what's right and wrong, it's that we now want to do what's right and we have a new motive to not do what's wrong. There's still a conflict between the spirit and the flesh that will ultimately be resolved when we, when we die and we are brought into the presence of God or when Jesus returns and we are, um, you know, trans- transformed. We are changed as 1 Corinthians 15 says. At that point, we have the spirit pushing those desires of godliness and good things and the flesh is gone. So there's no conflict anymore. There's just us having his law written in our hearts, so to speak. Um, We actually get some mentions of this in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple verses and then I'll move on to the next question. This is Romans 2, 14 through 16. This is very clear answer to your question um, about people who don't have the law of the Old Testament, so Gentiles. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves. Let me paraphrase this very crudely for the sake of clarity and say um, when people do right stuff without having been told by God what is right through, say, revelation of Scripture, it proves that they know what's right and wrong already because what God has written it inside of them already in some sense, even though their willingness isn't there, their awareness is there, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. There's like a little, this passage kind of like gives a glimpse forward into judgment day and suggests that people will be judged not only for what they did, but for what they were aware of. So like, You did what was wrong, and you knew it was wrong. You did what was wrong, but you were confused, or you you didn't understand, and it wasn't your own fault for some reason, you know, there's less judgment for that. But then we have the description of what happens when you get saved, Philippians 2.13, God is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That is the ability to, to serve him, but also the desires. When you ask God to join into your life, you're like saying, Lord, I want you to change my desires. I want you to impact my heart. I want you to make me um, more willing. Now, God doesn't do this apart from your choosing, but he does, you know, this is him writing the law in our hearts. So all that to say, um, in answer your question, Zach, it's actually a really important biblical principle that human beings around the planet innately know right from wrong even if they're not totally accurate in their assessment of what's right and wrong they know moral right from wrong in general and they're and they're all falling short of this Romans 3 and they all fall short of this and fixing this is god not only having jesus take our sin upon himself on the cross die rise again but then give us the holy spirit to to effect an inward transformation and we sometimes call this sanctification this is the ongoing thing in the life of a believer bringing you more and more in line with the will of God for your life, to, to, to will and do according to His good pleasure. And then finally, when we when we are rid of this flesh, and this incorruption, this corruption puts on incorruption. 1 Corinthians fifteen language there. That's when we no longer even have the battle. It's just going to be um, godliness. So I hope that that helps. Um, one of the reasons why this is so important is because we need to be able to say that God is righteous in His judgment. So contrary to what a lot of atheists have been led to believe Christian doctrine does not teach that we get morality from the Bible. Although we do teach something very different, which is that the Bible gives us accurate morality to help fix where we get things wrong. But rather Christianity teaches that humans innately understand morality. And this is part of the judgment that comes against us. All right, let's go to the next question. This is from um, anonymous who says, hi, pastor Mike, the Lord has blessed me tremendously in life. I love him and want to please him, but for some reason, and I have no excuse, I find it really hard to have a calm, grateful, and God-honoring attitude. I'm easily irritated and find myself complaining about little things constantly, especially when I don't get my way or experience a minor inconvenience. I'm ashamed of this and don't want my attitude to be this way, but I can't seem to change. 30-year-old female, please help. Um, There is a book my wife... Okay, this is obviously... Obviously, look, I can encourage you, uh, read scripture, um, you know, pray, and these are obvious necessary steps in the things you're going through. There, there is a book, um, man, uh, you know what I'm going to do? Okay. Come back later. I'm going to ask my wife the name of this book. I'll put it in a comment and, and I'll, um, let me see. I'll, I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put it in the pinned comment on the top of this video afterwards. I can't remember the name of the book. She said that this has, is something on those exact same lines. I cannot remember the name of it because I didn't read it. I can't endorse the book. I'm just saying that was something that helped my wife uh, on this. So a couple other things though. Um, one of the things that feeds our ingratitude is expressing it because there's something of... We believe the things that we say out loud. <laughs> okay. This is not... Don't take this in a weird new age direction. I don't say that our words make things true. I'm saying that when we... We we, um, we frame the stuff we're going through with the way we talk about it. And if we complain about our lives audibly, we physically say words that are negative about our lives. We do tend to cause our own perception of those things to be more negative. So... The solution, one of the solutions, is as it says in scripture: do everything without complaining or arguing. That doesn't mean you can never say, "Oh, this is hard." Today is a hard day. You can't, I'm not saying that, but you know, complaining—that negative kind of thing—to just say, "I'm just not going to say it out loud." Maybe I'm feeling it. I'm not going to say it out loud. That is not to say I'm going to suffer silently, like like a like a like a, uh, like a martyr. That's <laughs> uh, that's just more of the complaining. So, what I instead I'm suggesting is. When it comes to your mind to complain, instead offer gratitude. It won't feel natural. That's okay. Uh, one of the solutions to this is that you're going through a hard time. Your job that day is really rough and you stop and you realize you're upset about it. You realize you're bothered by it and out of your mouth would come, oh, this day is so annoying or something like that. And instead you say, Lord, I'm grateful that I even have a job. There's so many people out there right now that that are out of work and they're really hurting. I'm just thankful that I have a job. Um, Oh man, I have a weird headache today. It's worse than you know ever before. I'm I'm, you know I'm I'm grateful that I don't have these headaches every single day. Some people do, you know. I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm happy that I've thank you that I have medication that can help me through it. That kind of thing. What I'm suggesting is that there's an attitude of gratitude that is a methodological practice. At first, you put it on. You just do it as a habit, and then it helps to shape your thinking. There is directioned thinking. I, this Forgive me, guys, for making up a term that sounds weird. Um, we can cause our thoughts to be moving in good directions or negative directions by what we choose to meditate on. So Philippians talks about this. Think on whatsoever things are true, noble, just, good, right? These are the things to consider. So I'm encouraging you. Um, when you're tempted to complain, when you're feeling ungrateful, when you are feeling irritated and you're not getting your way and you have a minor inconvenience, you stop and you speak in prayer, a prayer of gratitude for something that is bigger than the thing that is annoying you. That would be my single encouragement to you. Um, I'll find the name of that book. Haven't read it. Can't endorse it. I'm just passing on some information. All right. And I'll put it in the pinned comment below after the stream. Let's go to the next question. This is from Daniel Andres uh, Mises. Mises? Don't know how to pronounce your last name, Daniel. Sorry. Hey, Mike, may God bless you. I have a question. What's your thought on the reform perspective with covenant theology versus dispensational view? Love your ministry. All right. Before I answer this question, I just I figured I should show you my cat's legs. <laughs> there she is. There she is. There she is. See, this is real. That's my hand right there. And... um. I, I, you know, I thought I could distract you with my cat because I'm not going to answer your question very well, Daniel, (laughs) seeing as how I'm not entirely sure uh, how I'm going to answer this question. Here's the thing. Um, Covenant theology versus dispensational view is very complicated. And one of the hardest things to do for me is summarizing it briefly. So I have a dispensational view, but I don't have a dispensational view. Look, dispensationalism gets really weird and a lot of people only react to the weird stuff. Like there are some who took dispensationalism to the idea and for those who aren't familiar with it, here's a part that got weird. One of the biggest things that got weird was the idea that Jews and and non-Jews, Jews and Christians, as if Christian means not Jew. There are plenty of Jews who are Christians or messianic who follow Jesus. So but they would separate these into two groups, Jewish people and and you know, Christian people, and that, that the Jewish people have a different way of getting saved than the Christian people. Now, that is weird. Okay, this is not biblical, right? This is not, that's weird. So, th- so when you go, well, yeah, I'm dispensational. Some people immediately think you have that view. Okay, but that's not the case. So I, I think these things get complicated. Covenant theology, on the other hand, it starts with a really solid base. It's like, hey, God has these different covenants. Okay, we can all acknowledge that, right? There's this view of like, um, God has a covenant through Mo- through Moses, right? with the people of Israel. We, some people call it the Mosaic Covenant or the law, right? So that that I spoke of earlier, hey, if you obey me, you'll get blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. It's kind of a works-based thing, but it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> it really is when you really dig deep on these issues. And so covenant theology sometimes gets really specific and says there are this many covenants. There are seven covenants. There are nine covenants. There are these different covenants. There's the Noahic Covenant. There's the Adamic Covenant. And like God had a covenant with not just... Situation with Adam, but a covenant with Adam that needs to be listed in these. And that's where I start to feel like, oh, I think we're pushing this thing a little far. So my thoughts are I don't hold to covenant theology, whole cloth, um, although there's elements of it that I think everybody will agree with. And the dispensational view has these weird elements that I reject. And so I'm concerned about calling myself that. This is why. I have a hard time answering your question, Daniel. So, you know, on my long, long list of things is to sit down one day, get my own understanding better on covenant theology, dispensational, and then perhaps produce a a clear teaching on the topic, but I'm not really equipped to do so. Just now, let me move on. Drum detect says, why did Jesus say, forgive them for they know not what they do. If Jesus knew they had to do it to save us at the cross. So this is, this one's pretty easy for me anyways. I think it's easy. So forgive me if, if it doesn't seem to come off that way. Uh, but drum detect, here's the idea. Jesus, he, he, he knows he has to be crucified, but those who are crucified, he wants his grace to extend to them as well. That's the, that's, that's the, um, the tension that we should see here. I must be crucified. Oh, but like Jesus says, woe to the one who, who delivers me. Like, this is going to happen, but woe to those who were doing it. And his prayer then is for them to receive grace and forgiveness. What we're seeing with this, forgive them for they know not what they do, is the attitude of Jesus on the cross toward his enemies. He loves his enemies. Jesus populates his kingdom with people who used to hate him. It's his greatest delight to take those who hate him and turn them into friends. And this is a great posture that Christians should have. We turn the other cheek. We bless those who curse us. We pray for those who spitefully use us. We love our enemies because this is what Jesus does on the cross. So, um, yes, the crucifixion had to happen, but it had to happen to save the very people who were crucifying Jesus. It just shows God's love, his patience, his kindness, and it's a very challenging example for us to follow as Christians. Um, as we look at, say, the things that are going on in Afghanistan right now, the Taliban, and it's easy to turn. Um, okay, look, if they continue, if they do the things they're doing, they will be judged horrifically by God. Like they, and they deserve it. But we still pray for them to turn and change, right? That they would be forgiven, for they know they, in many cases, are. They don't really understand what they're doing. They know it's there's some conscience in them, knowing it's wrong. But do they really understand that the religious views they have that are driving them? wrong. Do they really? Um, There's some level of darkness there. So uh, God saved those who are being persecuted and God saved those who are persecuting them. That's, I think, the Christian view. Jack O'Connell says in Revelation 21.1, it describes a sea vanishing. Is this sea the same as the sea of glass in Revelation 4.6, where some have suggested it symbolizes the barrier that separates God from man? Um, let me actually I'll just change to answer this. I'm just gonna go to Revelation 21 1 I don't I think the sea of glass is a, a heavenly description in Revelation 4 um, If I recall correctly that that is something that is seen in in heaven the sea of glass So it's it's not a description of something on earth. Whereas I think Revelation 21 is talking about earth. Let me read it to you guys and give you at least my current understanding of this Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven Notice these things, and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Now here's how some have interpreted this, and here's, this is probably the interpretation I was exposed to earliest, is the view that um, Revelation 21, one, when it says there's no sea, it means that in the new creation, there's no sea, um, there's no water, there's no big bodies of water, at least no ocean. I lean a different way. Could be wrong. May change your mind. Okay, but here's what here's how I lean. Um, when we see the word Earth, we tend to think about the globe, right? And if you're a flat earther, like I'm not, I'm not talking about that. Okay, I don't care <laughs> right now. I have a video on that. The Bible doesn't teach that, but I'm not talking about it. Okay, so when we hear the word Earth, we currently tend to think of globe. Uh, for the most part, the Bible is not trying to describe, like ever the shape of the earth, okay? They, it's, so when we read new heaven, new earth, we're like, okay, there's the sky, there's the earth, and as you keep traveling on the earth, you get to a point where you reach the sea. I think what Revelation 21 is saying is, earth, meaning dry land, just like in the original creation, right? There's the earth, there's the the, the land, uh, the, which is the land, the then there's the sea, which is the water areas, right? So I think what's being said here is, the old earth, right? Uh, the first heaven, that is stars, all this kind of stuff. The first earth, all that's passing away. Oh, and also the sea, in case you didn't realize what he was saying was all of it. All of creation, heaven, earth, sea, all of it is going to be remade. That's all I take Revelation 21 1, to say. I don't personally, maybe I'll change your mind, don't think that that means that in the new creation, the new heaven and earth, there is no sea. Right? That's Just how I take it. Um, So I wouldn't relate that to to Revelation 4 at all, personally. Um, Could be wrong. That seems to be right to me. But I feel like I'd want to do more work on it. Uh, Leslie Johnson says, My 14-year-old does not like the subject of death. Totally understandable. Uh, Her father, my husband, died suddenly four years ago. Even more understandable. Uh, How can I talk about salvation and other biblical things in a way that doesn't make her anxious? Thanks. Leslie, um, there are lots of ways to talk about salvation that don't include the subject of death. Um, especially, uh, we have to be especially sensitive with kids who um, topic certain topics just freak them out and they're not ready for them. And so we need wisdom and, and, and understanding and care, you know, caution in those things to not just say like, here's my message I'm gonna give it to the, you know, for instance, I don't think the Bible was written for children this might sound controversial (laughs) I don't think the Bible was written for children and I would not want a child like I don't want like a a seven-year-old to be verse by verse worked through the Song of Solomon I don't know that that's really a very good idea I do want young people to really understand Proverbs I want them to really understand the gospel of Jesus, but there's certain elements I'm not going to try to explain to them as we're reading through because of their age. Jesus even said this with his disciples. He's like, hey, there's 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 more things I want to tell you, um, but you're not ready for them yet. Or in, in Hebrews, it talks about milk and meat, these like different um, sort of depths of understanding different things. So I'm just saying there's an awareness of this kind of thing. That being said, you can talk to her about... Um, I mean you, you you don't have to emphasize if death is a particular traumatizing concept for her you don't have to emphasize death you could however talk about eternal joys and life. you could talk about it from the positive angle of Jesus overcoming those things. you could also discuss the nature of our current relationship with God that we we all have sinned right We all have failed but Jesus he brings a solution you know you, you're not going to obviously avoid all discussion of death but you don't have to highlight, Death in a way that just propagates the traumatizing that she's already experienced So I just say use wisdom. There's lots you can discuss there God giving his Holy Spirit having a relationship with God knowing God abiding in the vine These are all wonderful things to discuss that You know might be sensitive to where she's at so God give you wisdom on that Leslie um, No one knows your daughter like you So my encouragement is Use your knowledge of your daughter to think of the best way to talk to her about the Lord and to meet her needs where she's at while bringing her the true gospel. Number seven, A.D. Chan says, John 16:7 says, Paraclete is the Holy Spirit. And 1 John 2, 1 says it's Jesus Christ. I cannot believe this is a mistranslation. So what is 1 John 2, 1 talking about? Love you, bro. Love you too, A.D., as much as I can love... <laughs> I mean, you're my brother in Christ. I love you, but I wouldn't recognize you on the street, unfortunately. Okay, so John, let's look at these two verses. John chapter, um, sorry. Yeah, John 16, 7. Let me take you guys there. Um, Okay, so he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And I'm just going to double check. Um, the, the Greek here, and I, I can't put it on your screen very easily. So, and it's not super important that I do at the moment. Okay. Uh, yeah. parakletas. So that, that is the Greek word that's used to discuss the helper. Now let me do something else that will mess up your guys' screens and be almost completely illegible. Interestingly enough, this word is used five times in the new Testament. We have it in the following places. Um, John 14, 6, Jesus says, 16, 14, 16, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another paracletan to be with you forever. That's the first use. Let me actually take you guys there. And this may help answer your question already. Um, he will give you another helper. This is the first time Jesus uses the term and first time it's used in the New Testament at all. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper. So he's not. The Holy Spirit isn't Jesus, but he's like Jesus in that he will be a helper for them. But as Jesus is leaving, he will die and then, and, and then resurrect and then ascend, go to heaven. The helper, the Holy Spirit will remain with them. And that's the way Jesus stays with us is, is, you know, um, through the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Then in John 14, 26, we have it used the next time. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things, bring to remembrance all that I've said. In John fifteen twenty six, we have the next occurrence of the word. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth proceeds from the father. He'll bear witness about me. And then you'll bear witness. So they're going to be inspired by the spirit in their witness bearing. An interesting concept to think about. And then in sixteen seven, which is the verse you brought up. Um, it's your, to your advantage I go away. If I don't go, the helper will not come. So just know this. The word helper when we look at john from the first mention in john 14 16 it's not only a term to describe the holy spirit it's a term that can be describing jesus or the holy spirit because they're both functioning in similar ways for the disciples of guiding and teaching and directing and helping them then when you get to first john um the next time the word is used... Uh, you don't want the Greek. <laughs> the next time the word is used is actually 1 John 2.1. And it says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. And that this was um, the other verse you brought up. Um, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate or a parakletas, a helper, parakleton. Anyway, same basic Hebrew, uh, Greek word. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the Holy Spirit let me put it all together, is the helper who is with us right now. Jesus is the helper who's advocating on our behalf with the Father. It is used in a different sense there. The Holy Spirit's helping us to um, be empowered, to be strengthened, to get wisdom, to have inspiration, um, knowledge, and those types of things. Um, To have the closeness of God with us. Jesus, as our advocate, is functioning in a different way. He's, He's functioning, helping us by... Um, being the one who justifies us before the Father, so when I sin for shun two one, Jesus is standing there saying, "I paid for him." I'm not literally standing saying that, but this is the effect: is as he's saying, "I paid for him. I stood as his representative on the cross, and now I stand representing him in heaven. I, um, I assure his forgiveness and freedom before you, Father. That that would be my understanding there. Yeah. So from its first use, the word refers to the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and in its in yeah, and then the first John 2 1. Understanding makes sense. Next one, number eight, this is Bethany eighty-eight, who says, Do we have evidence that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? My atheist friend is questioning this. Also, your channel has been such a blessing in my life. Thank you for all you do. Bethany, this is not a worthwhile discussion for your atheist friend and you to have. Um here's the thing you want to ask yourself when witnessing. And even ask your friend, is if I win you on this issue, have I brought you closer to Christ? This is a, to me, this is a very important question to ask because if Moses, you can show him Moses did write the first five books of the Bible, is your atheist friend closer to becoming a Christian? Because we want them to know the truth of Christ and be transformed and saved and, and all that. I mean, this isn't just about winning arguments, right? So it's about evangelism. And the answer is probably no. I'm going to say it's probably no. I doubt that it would make that much of a difference. Here's another problem. Number two. If Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, it doesn't mean atheism is true. I want you to slow down. Everybody's thinking this. And um, there's something that some have called, and and I'll use the term here. I don't like it that much, but I, I don't know what else to use. A brittle fundamentalism. Although in some ways I am a, I'm fundamentalist in some ways. In other ways I'm totally not. So, But let's let's focus on this concept of brittleness. Brittleness is the idea that if I'm wrong about any aspect of my Christian faith, then my whole Christian faith crumbles. Let's say that I think that Moses wrote this book of the Bible. But in reality he didn't. Or at least I become convinced he didn't. And then you go, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm an atheist. That's a very irrational move to make yet a lot of people have become atheists because they found out something like, um, the particular Christian tradition they were raised up in had some baggage that wasn't accurate. And now they're atheist. And you're like, well, that doesn't, that seems like an overreaction, right? Um, so with the Moses question, it actually can get complicated. Well, what if, what if Moses wrote some of the first five books of the Bible and is therefore it's chief author, but there's other other things going on in the history of those books. So we call it Moses, its chief author. Okay, well, then it gets more complicated. And all I'm say, suggesting here is this is an in-house discussion that Christians can have. I would lean towards thinking Moses wrote all five books of the Bible, of the of the first five books of the Bible, but I know there are reasons to, to consider that that might be inaccurate. I don't, I haven't chased down that argument mm-hmm. because I really see it as a totally in-house discussion mm-hmm. and not one that... I'm going to try to have with an atheist. <laughs> Instead, I'd like to talk to the atheist about whether God exists <laughs> or whether Jesus is legit and not about the authorship of uh, Old Testament books. <laughs> Number nine, anonymous question says, is it a sin for the for the man if a woman decides to get an abortion with or without his consent? Does that make a difference? Love your show and have been wanting to hear this answer for, for so long. Thanks. All right. Awesome. I'm, I'm happy that you uh, you're, appreciate the program. So is it a sin? I'm going to read it again because I want to make sure I'm clear. Is it a sin for the man if a woman decides to get an abortion with or without his consent? doesn't make a difference. Um, the man, if, if the man has no causal relationship, I'm going to word this carefully, has no causal relationship to the sin, then the sin is not his fault that's that's how i understand things so he didn't cause anything let's say the man was causing in some sense he encouraged her you know I, 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 and and maybe he's all passive aggressive about it like oh, I, i'm not going to tell you what to do you know it's your body which is not true why do they always say it's her body when it's the baby's body that we're talking about not just there's two bodies not just one if you pretend there's one You are pretending. (laughs) And you're pretending so that you can devalue a human life. But that's a different issue. So let's suppose he passive-aggressively says like, yeah, it's your body, you know, do what you want. I, I hope you make a wise decision. But in their relationship, that is obvious pressure for her to get an abortion. She knows, right? And then he can act like it was on her because he doesn't want to be responsible. What I'm suggesting is if the man knows the woman is pregnant, he has a responsibility as the father to do what he can to save that baby's life. He, because he's the father. Parents have, an, have, and this is a, a belief I have about morals, right? And I, th- I think it's um, demonstrated pr- true in scripture as well, is that parents have a moral obligation to take care of their children. A moral obligation. So if the man knows even, look at it this way, if he's even passive, if he's even does nothing to stop an abortion, I think that he's guilty, because imagine if I was abusing a child, and uh, let's say that I'm, I'm, I'm married and I've got three kids and I'm abusive to my kids, and my wife does nothing to stop me, okay, the part where she did nothing, that was moral responsibility, because as those kids grow up, they'll be like, mom, you never did anything, you didn't do anything to stop that. So that, in that sense, yeah, okay, if he merely, well, I didn't tell her to get an abortion, like, that's not good enough. I, I think the man has a responsibility to take care of her, but if he has no, um, in addition to that, if he has no causal role in bringing up about the abortion, I wouldn't put it on him. Yeah, I hope that was clear. <laughs> Number 10, uh, Becky Matthews says, my friend asked me if we didn't choose to exist, Or come into existence? Why do we have to follow what God says or his standards? Why does he have standards anyways? How do I respond? So Becky, this is a really fantastic example of what I will consider. And forgive me guys. This is not, I'm not saying the person's obnoxious. I'm going to use the word obnoxious. I'm not saying the person who says this is obnoxious. But I think that the argument is obnoxious. The argument, not the person. Okay, the person is just confused. The argument is obnoxious. The argument goes like this. Um, I should have no responsibilities before God because he didn't ask my permission to create me. Now let's talk about logical possibility for just a second. It, let's, let's take the hypothesis that God has to ask your permission to create you. What would be required? This is why it's obnoxious for God to ask your permission. He would have to create you, give you a mind, the ability to have a will. He would have to do all that in order to say, hey, let's say your name is Jeff. Hey, Jeff, I brought you into existence. Hi, I'm God. I just wanted to ask you if it's okay for me to bring you into existence. This is logically impossible. So the objection, let me restate it with that in mind. It goes like this. Why do I have to listen to God when God didn't do the logically impossible for me? That makes no sense whatsoever. That is a very obnoxious thing. Now there's a second layer. So in one sense, it's silly because it's logically impossible and it requires God to make me as a solution (laughs) to the problem of him making me. He has to make me without my permission as a solution to making me without my permission. That doesn't work. Um, But the second issue is this, is that mankind, I like what Roman says here, is that you're the potter, or he's the potter, you're the clay. What right does the clay have to say to the potter? Why have you made me like this? This is a very important, like, wisdom point, which is to say that if ever your thinking and your reasoning in your head has you shaking your fist at God, you know something's wrong. Even if you can't figure out where you're wrong or how you're wrong, you just know this. God the grounding of all moral truth and goodness God the all-wise and all-knowing God the all-powerful and God the holy one Here's me. I've got a lot of issues. I don't really know that much compared to him um, I have my own situations in life I've got my own sin issues and all this kind of stuff and I'm convinced that this holy and all-knowing and wise and, and perfect God owes me an explanation and further that I'm upset and I have no responsibility to obey him, listen to him, do what he says. He needs to answer to me. I do not need to answer to him. This is an incredibly dangerous and arrogant place to be. If ever you find yourself shaking your fist at God, you have made some very dangerous wrong turns into the land of folly. It's, it's just really, really scary. So, um, Becky, I would say you're asking the logically impossible. You're also asking that he does what you don't want him to do, to keep him from doing what you don't want him to do, which is ironic and strange, and finally you're shaking your fist at God, which can't have any wisdom in it at all, and there's something in my eye. Number <laughs> number 11, I hope it's not a plank. Um, anonymous question says, how should Christians respond? Hold on, hold on. I'm going to show you guys before we do that. There's the cat cam as I try to <laughs> get something out of my eye. Did you switch sides again? There we go. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we got we got Moxie. That's Moxie. We got her from uh, the pound. She, so it's not like I mean, she's this really beautiful cat, but she just came from the pound. She was running around growling at the other cats. <laughs> True story. Um, okay. Here's the question number eleven. How should Christians respond to the push to get the COVID vaccine, especially here in LA? Is it our Christian duty to put others above ourselves, even if it betrays conscience? Um, here's what I can't comment on with any confidence, is the medical issues about the vaccine. Okay. I, um, now, some are going to take this to think that, oh, Mike's abandoning his responsibility. Cannot comment on because I don't understand the issues and am not your resource for figuring it out i'm not a medical expert um not only that i'm not remotely spending any time trying to figure this stuff out because i am in case you guys can't notice i'm obsessed with certain things and that's how i bring benefit into people's lives i'm not going to pretend i know everything else so can't really comment on that um so how should we respond to the push to get the covid vaccine i think our general attitude towards government is one of submission unless in principle unless that submission is going to cause uh, us to re- to you know rebel against god so so when we have a choice between obeying government or obeying god we choose obey god and in cases some cases where the government is putting innocent people in harm's way and it's our responsibility to protect them some think the vaccine is doing that i'm you know private opinion here I'm not asking you to share it mm-hmm. i from my perspective, it looks like they're overreacting. Okay, so so I'm going to generally take a more submissive Christian, submission Submission's a good word. It's not a bad word, <laughs> attitude towards those things. There's my, there's my short answer. I'm not holding anything back because I'm scared of what someone's going to think about me. I'm trying to guard myself from making too many claims about things I don't understand because I don't, I know a lot of you will just take my word for it. Okay, you're just going to go, well, Mike said this, so I'm going to go that way. And the way I protect you from me getting giving you bad advice is to not give you advice in areas that I don't understand as well. That's, this is about protecting you from me <laughs> who has a lot of influence in other, in a lot of people's lives at this point by God's uh, grace, but also stricter judgment for me for doing it. Number 12, Andrzej Polak says, does Matthew five eighteen teach the doctrine of preservation? What are your thoughts on this doctrine? Oh, that's really interesting. So Preservation is a doctrine related for those who, who need a little refresher on this. It's a doctrine related to the idea of like, um, not just, okay, so we believe scripture is inspired, but just because it was originally inspired, we have to have something else to make sure that when we get it hundreds, thousands of years later, it has been preserved, right? So it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't lost the data, the information that God has embedded in Scripture for us to have. That's a doctrine of preservation. So some would hold that the doctrine of preservation is like every single letter and word is preserved with total confidence. Um, others would hold um, preservation a little bit more loosely, and they would say, no, all, all of the all of the um, important stuff. Yeah, and and I'm not saying this is my view. They would say all like the, the important stuff is preserved. It, it, then there's a debate on what do you mean by important stuff? What's what's important, what's not? Um, mm-hmm. Others would say that, hey, you could even, and here's like a, maybe a kind of a middle ground. We have within the the manuscripts available to us, we have the exact right reading of every verse. We just sometimes aren't sure whether it's that reading or that reading. So we have two readings, meaning that like say in your Bibles, Here's a little Bible I got, and you've got a reading. <laughs> I got this when I was a little younger. <laughs> it's a tiny, tiny print. Um, I can still read it, but it's not as enjoyable. Um, anyway, so you've got the readings here, and you have, here's the, this this other version of preservation. You have either in the main text or in the footnotes, you're going to have the correct reading. So they're not going to tell you which one it is for sure, but they're going to say that it's been preserved. So that's another view of preservation. Um put really simply preservation just says god gave his word god preserves his word okay and i agree with that but when you get to the details that can get kind of complicated in application right um now all of the positions i gave you are going to give you a reliable bible the three positions i just gave you they'll give you a reliable all three of them will but there's going to be a debate over which one you've got now does matthew 5:18 weigh in on this Um, for truly, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay. I'm just going to comment on this one verse. This isn't like a teaching I'm doing on the whole doctrine of preservation. I'm not prepared in my head to do that off the top of my head, but I don't think this verse is intended to be directly about preservation. Okay. So in my collection of Bible verses about preservation, I would probably not include this verse to be about that not that it you know that's all i'm saying um and this is the case in in a lot of the verses that i when i was much younger i heard and used to talk about preservation and then now in reflection i go was i using those in context right like god's word is pure it's purified seven times is that is that about preservation proverbs um i i don't think that verse is about preservation so we have to start vetting these things and, and carefully and it's it's a, it's a job I haven't actually worked all the way through, but Matthew 5, 18 says for truly, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot. These are different, uh, Hebrew like, um, symbols. Iotas, a a uh, Yoda, uh, uh, it's like a tiny little, um, Hebrew letter. It's the smallest letter in Hebrew. And then a dot refers to like these little, if you've ever seen Hebrew, they have like, they'll have like extra stuff there's letters and then there's like dots that represent vowels or represent other things and so none of that stuff will pass from the law until all is accomplished now if you take this as a a preservation verse it's a little bit of a problem because it implies that the bible's temporary (laughs) and so um, because it's like oh it's gonna pass once it's fulfilled those things start to pass from and i would not take that view although That almost works well with what some pastors have strangely preached recently. I think what Jesus is talking about here is not text, but prophecy. He uses dots and iotas. I absolutely understand that, but I don't think he's deliberately talking about preservation. I could be wrong. I think he's talking about prophecy. I think his point here is saying everything that's been predicted will be fulfilled, So he's drawing clarity here, not about, he's not having a debate with people about the nature of the preservation of scripture. He's having to bring clarity on his mission. His mission, he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets, right? He's not come to abolish them. He reiterates twice, but his mission is to fulfill them. And the implication here is, hey, I'm not attacking, and this is this is a Christian message to Jews as well, right? We are not attacking the Old Testament. We are claiming that Jesus has fulfilled it, that your Hebrew Bible finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so, when when you see um, a Christian saying like, "I I don't need to be under the law. I can be I can be saved," and you know what? Even you Jewish friends of ours, you can put your trust in Messiah, and you can be forgiven apart from the works of the law. That's not because it's a rejection of the law, it's because it's the fulfillment of the law. So this is like an important theological point that isn't really in my mind about preservation. Um, I, yeah, still want to spend more time on that in the future. Number 13, how can the three persons of the Trinity be distinct if they have all the same attributes, omnis, and their wills are the same? Um, Okay, so they do have all the same attributes. Um... Yeah, I don't know if I even know how to answer this question, Jay. Um, so all each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is Father, uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They all are omnipresent, or another way to put this is transcendent. They're not dependent on space, time, any of that stuff. They're transcendent, so they're omnipresent. They're um, eternal. Which is not to say they're very old. It's to say that they're not even dependent upon time. They're they're always they're they're, they are the permanent feature of reality. (laughs) Right? God is the permanent feature of reality. Um, the the uh, you remember the Trinity is uh, omnibenevolent. Maybe another word. God is love. Right? All knowing, so omniscient. And then you're you're like, well, then how are they any different? Um. They're not different. Here's the thing. I guess this might be my answers. I'm trying to like think how to process this. They're not different in being as though we have, and you know this, but I'm just going to remind us of it. They're not different in th- as in three different beings. They're three different persons. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are persons that share the same being. When you When you understand that the Trinity is not three gods equals one God, but it is three persons in one God. Then it then it seems like this kind of objection becomes less forceful. Um you did say their wills are the same. In that I'm gonna push back a little bit on that, just specifically because the New Testament, okay, their wills are the same. Um I, I not like there's ever been disagreement within the Trinity, but there is there is this. Okay, so let let's look at the garden passage. And when we read about Jesus in the garden, he says something very interesting. Um, okay, so he says to the disciples, like, sit here while I pray. He's in Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified. He takes with him Peter, James, and John, and he gets greatly distressed and troubled. He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And, and then going a little further, he prays. They probably hear. His his prayer audibly, that's probably why he kept them where they were. He wanted them to witness this very hard moment, I'm guessing. But verse 36, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There is some sense in which Jesus, perhaps due to the nature of the incarnation, is able to have a will that on some layers, it's not like wills are Perfectly singular in every way. Sometimes you want something and you don't want it at the same time. Okay, so that's kind of how it is, right? Um, I want that hamburger, but I don't want that hamburger (laughs) and so um, But there's some sense in which the wills are not the same and the other thing I would suggest is that it's, it's it's entirely possible for the for most of eternity when the wills of the father son and spirit are in agreement That's not the same thing as saying they are the same. The wills are in agreement isn't the same as saying they are the same. Um, Something else to think about. I kind of spent a little long on that, so I'll move forward. But number 14, Johnny Sweet says, Is there ever a point where depression can be a sin issue? How should I view it in light of what the scripture says about worrying while being charitable towards those who are struggling? Um, I think that we should not say that somebody's emotional state is itself a sin. So I'm, I'm I'm depressed. That in itself, I don't want to say is a sin, but I don't want to be so clumsy with my terms here that I imply no matter how depressed you are, there is no sin related to it. That's not what I'm saying, okay? There may be sin related to it and there may be other things related to it. Let me go back to the verse I just referenced a moment ago though and let's look at Jesus' example here so he goes to the garden of gethsemane it says he takes with him peter james and john and then he began to be what greatly distressed and troubled now he is not just bothered the term the terms used here are so intense he's greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch my soul sorrowful to death now some christians would go to jesus in the garden and be like cheer up you're gonna you're gonna be fine you know you know that's it's just have the joy of the Lord well that isn't really the biblical perspective the biblical perspective of joy is not that you're always currently experiencing it it's sometimes something that you're going to experience in the future that helps you while you're going through hard times in the present and not experiencing the joy right this is this is supported in other places let me take you to a text um Hebrews 12, 2, which says that we should look to Jesus. He's our example, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not the joy he was experiencing in the moment, but the joy that was set before him. He knows there's a future joy and it gets him through the hard times of the present. What I'm going to suggest is our attitude towards suffering and towards feeling down, feeling worried, Feeling distressed? If we would rebuke Jesus in the garden, then we've, we're missing something, right? We're missing something about this. Um, I actually have a video on this where I talk about de- um, uh, how to deal with depression. If you just type in, you know, go to Biblethinker.org and type the word depression, it should pop up pretty easily there, along with other stuff. We have our our search feature on Biblethinker.org. We spent many, 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 many volunteer hours have gone into that to make all the content searchable. You can even find specific moments in videos where I talk about specific issues hoping that it may help you and assist you, Mm -hmm. and it's all free. Um, So that being said, Johnny Sweet, is there ever a point when depression can be a sin issue? Yes, there is a point when it can be a sin issue, but how do I know when that is? My, My fear is that for those in my family, in my life, my friends, who suffer with depression issues, that my point when it's a sin issue is just the point at which I become irritated. And that's a fear I, I'm worried I will fall into. You know what? I'm just sick of your attitude. And then now, I, now that now it's a sin because I'm irritated by it. That would be my fear that I would fall into. Um, so instead, I would not focus on the depression issue. I would, I would move out and I would put emphasis on other issues. Um, so yes, you're down and depressed, but are you obeying God in your life? That's not an issue about depression, is it? That's an issue about obedience. Ask the questions. Are you obeying God in your life? Are you, are you avoiding all fellowship because of your, because you're down? Are you shirking your responsibilities with work and family and friends? Are you not taking, are you not there for your kids and your spouse because you're feeling down? Um, These are things where depression can lead towards sin, even if itself is not sin. Jesus, as down as he was, was always obedient. Number 15, Caitlin Stanton says, hi, Mike, what is the best way to share Um, the gospel in the workplace, is there a guide to sharing the gospel that you keep to? Thanks for all you do. I appreciate you and your videos. Caitlin, I'm so sorry. I'm like the worst person for you to ask this question to. I have not been in the secular workplace for many years now because I used to, right? And I would share with people. And in my opinion, some of the best ways was to, um, okay, this is back in the day. (laughs) Um, not that I don't ever share. I'm just saying in the workplace, Right? i was a youth pastor so people expect you to talk about that stuff as a youth pastor um it's different but but when I'm, i was in secular workplaces i would find um uh times when people are on break before work after work um and i would find that for me personally it was a, it was more successful to just put my cards out there rather than play a game where i'm trying to get them to talk about things Without letting them know, I want them to talk about those things, and so I just gave up trying to do all that. Like, how do I get them to naturally talk about Jesus in this in the course of this conversation in a way where they don't even notice that I've segued them into this deep spiritual issue? I'd rather just be like, "Man, I've got to talk to you about Jesus. Can we just can we just talk about this? Like, I care about you, and I really wanted to talk about it and see what you think." Like I, I would prefer that approach to like creating smooth segues nobody notices, because everybody notices. <laughs> everybody notices. The thing is, what we don't realize is that when you're a Christian and you're open about it, when you are just standing in the room, the non-believer is often thinking about the fact that you're a Christian. I remember hearing a guy one time complain that we preached the gospel to him too much, this group of Christians even though we, I'm not kidding, had just had a conversation, man, when so-and-so comes back around, we should really talk to him about the Lord. We never talked to him about Jesus. And, um, he felt like we always talked to to him about it, even though we didn't, because our presence made him feel like it was always, um, the subtext of our conversations. So why not just make it the text? (laughs) Um, anyway, Caitlin, other than that, um, please look to someone else for, for really good tips and advice on this because it's just not in my recent experience the way it is for you and for so many others. Yeah. Yeah. Look around. All right. Number 16, Ubambo girl says, hi, Mike, please explain Exodus four verses 20 to 26, especially Zipporah's part. And it thanks. Okay. Well, I'm going to do my best. Let's walk through the passage together. Okay, this is towards the beginning of the book of Exodus. Um, So here it says, So Moses took his wife and sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Um, Let me... um, before we get to the poorest part, let me mention this hardening hardening of heart. I have a whole video on this that, I mean, I think really helpful teaching on the topic of God hardening hearts. I survey through scripture. We talk about Pharaoh. Um, God hardens Pharaoh in a way that does not violate Pharaoh's will, but puts Pharaoh through experiences where because of Pharaoh's inclinations, he will come even harder against God. Okay, so it's not like God's just forcefully causing hardness against, and Pharaoh's like, boy, I wish I could have, you know, turned my heart. Me, look up um, why God hardens hearts. Uh, that that would be, I think, the name of that video. Maybe Ahmad can put the the hardening heart video that I've got in the live chat as well. So, verse twenty-two. Uh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord: Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son." Um, Pharaoh is the guy responsible He's the lead of the nation Bears the brunt of the responsibility For the enslavement and mistreatment Of the people of Israel And his own house His firstborn doesn't People often picture the Pharaoh's firstborn As being a little baby um, There's no reason to think that was the case uh, More likely his firstborn son was older And so he was the next guy in line He was going to be the next king And so he's like I'm going to end your kingly line uh, because, it'll, because his firstborn would just be more of the same Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord, and this is the part I think you're interested in the most, the Lord met and sought to put him to death. That's Moses. God was going to kill Moses. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her, her son's foreskin, so circumcised him, and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, tons of stuff that's not mentioned in, the t- in this text, but is implied. The implication is right when i called abraham got here's from god's perspective when, when god called abraham i'll put it this way um he demanded that abraham circumcise his his household this was a sign of the covenant that god has with abraham when god is going to rescue the people of israel out of the land of egypt it's because of the covenant god has with abraham moses has not even circumcised his own family the the subtext the implication of the text is the reason is because his wife doesn't want it right his wife is from a different culture moses identifies with his uh you know abrahamic ancestry she does not and so there is a conflict now religiously in in religiously conflicted homes the children are usually uncommitted to any religious affiliation at least while they're kids when they grow up they make their own decisions but but throughout their their Teens and everything—they're usually like, "Well, my dad's Catholic and my, and my mom's a Muslim, so I'm a Catholic Muslim. I'm a Muslim Muslimic, you know, whatever." And and I mean, I've heard this—you've heard this too—from people where they just say, "Well, I'm like they're literally." This is this is scary to just get your religious views by adopting whatever your parents' view is. Um, but that's the normal way of, way of things. It's like rolling the dice and hoping you get it right. Um, at any rate, the 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 kids of Moses. Right? Moses, who's going to be the leader of Israel, who stands um, fulfilling you know, God's promise to Abraham, which is held by a covenant related to circumcision, he hasn't circumcised his kids. So the stakes are high. Moses is going to go to represent the people, and Moses seems to be yielding to his wife's desire to not circumcise the kids. God met with him, with Moses, and was going to kill him. The impression, now we don't know the details, okay? I don't want to try to pretend I know. But the impression is that Moses at this point was unable to even circumcise his own his own kid his own uh, son so Zipporah does it she is not interested in doing this she doesn't want to do it but she does it anyways she then upset she's not submitting because she wants to she's submitting because the stakes are so high so she uh you know does the circumcision and and I know it's gross okay but this is what happened throws the 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 foreskin at Moses's feet and then calls him a bridegroom of blood. She, it really irritates her. This really bothers her. It's not just the nature of there being bleeding. It's not like this is major injury being done or something like that. But she does not like circumcision. <laughs> okay, that's the idea. Um, throughout Exodus, we get this idea that God is pretty serious about his people following his rules. And he's not going to let Moses... Obviously, he was not really going to kill Moses. This God knew ahead of time that this whole thing would play out. So this is not seen as a, boy, Moses almost got killed moment. This is instead, I think, properly seen as God knew the whole story from beginning to end. He knew everything that would happen. This is just a moment to show you how serious God is about them following his rules and about the fulfillment of a promise to Abraham. Um, That's how I would interpret that passage. I hope that it helps. Number 17, Wade Nelson. What is your view of a husband and wife having differing opinions on eschatology on matters of salvation and particular particular Bible verses best to just agree or to disagree I have no blanket rule on this Wade Um, I say let all you do be done in love with with marriage I mean this is sounds cliche but it's actually super important consistent advice let all you do be done in love Um, let me break these down separately differing views of eschatology unless those views threaten other doctrines that are more core to the Christian faith like so if you're like a full preterist or a hyper-preterist might be a better way to put it. You have, it's not your views of end times that I'm specifically just concerned about. It's how those views are impacting other doctrines that are very important, right? Like the idea that there'll be a resurrection. <laughs> like if you think there is no resurrection, that's a core Christian doctrine. Um, So uh, so yeah, the eschatology, like say someone's like, I'm pre-trib, I'm post-trib, I'm mid-trib, I'm, I'm, I'm millennial, I'm preterist, not hyper, but preterist, Okay, well, I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to be like, we can agree to disagree. This is totally okay. We can talk about it and not talk about it. Agree to disagree. That's all right. If it if it touches on other things like matters of salvation that are core doctrines of the Christian faith, that's something that needs to be discussed more. But with love, let all you do be done with love. Particular Bible verses where we disagree. It, it depends. It just depends on the importance of the passage. Husbands. Do not feel the need to make your wife agree with you on everything. That is not, it's not that important. How you disagree says more about your marriage than agreeing all the time. How you disagree says more about the health and maturity of your relationship than agreement all the time. Number 18, Valkyr says, Can someone be beyond repentance as Esau was? Um... I believe so. I believe there is a hardness of heart that gets to a state where a person will never repent. But, and this is super important that you guys hear me on this, it is not because God is unwilling to forgive. It is because the heart of the person is so hard they will never repent. Do you understand? It's them withholding repentance and not God withholding forgiveness that is the problem. There are many people out there who think, Lord, I want to turn to you, but I just don't know you'll forgive me. That's not true. Yes, if you turn, he'll forgive you. The only question is, will you turn? So when you put it this way, the way you worded it, someone's beyond repentance. I mean, they will never repent. Just like how there's some people you know, how um, no matter what you say, they hate you forever. <laughs> right? Like, And you're like, there's just nothing I can say that will ever fix this situation because... It's not on me. It's in them. They're just so hateful towards me. There's nothing I can do. This does happen sometimes. That's the situation with beyond repentance, right? Um, So I think that the video I did on this that we will link below and hopefully it's in the live chat. One of the mods can put that in there about why God hardens hearts. That is a super important teaching related to these complicated and difficult issues. Jonathan Koo has a question says, is Um, is Christianity a faith that should make sense or is just having the faith to believe or is it just having the faith to believe? How can we believe if one person interprets the Bible this way and another the other way? All right, let me try to break this down. Jonathan, there is some things going on in your mind that I'm going to try to understand based on the the little opportunity you have to type a few words in the chat here. Um, two questions. We'll take the first one first. Is Christianity, and you offer two options: a faith that should make sense, or is just having the faith to—is it just having the faith to believe? I don't think these are two different options. I think that they can both be true. Christianity is a faith that does make sense, and it's very important that you have belief, that you have faith. So I'm not really sure where the conflict there is, but I will say I'm not what uh, some would call a fideist. So, a fideist is like a kind of a philosophical position where you don't have any reason for belief. You don't have any evidence for belief. You just have belief and you and you say there there doesn't need to be any grounding. There doesn't need to be any evidence. There doesn't need to be any reasons. so these these different camps. One's the fideist. i don't I don't follow that camp. I think scripture uses evidence all the time. And I think it's kind of important that it does, and that you and me, let me give you some of the the examples. Let me actually um, give you one example because um, I think it's a good one. All right, Acts chapter one. In the first book, O Theophilus, this is Luke writing. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. Look at what Luke one three says then about Jesus. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke thinks that, and under the inspiration of the Spirit, that the resurrection of Jesus and them seeing him with their own eyes, that that was a proof, that was a proof for the truth of Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Let me take you some other stuff in the book of Acts specifically that talk about this as well. Um Let's see. In Acts 17, 2, um, we, we read out Paul the apostle, he goes to various locations and he's there dealing with the synagogues. He focuses on synagogues initially in his in his evangelism. He goes to New Town, first thing he does is hit the synagogue and start preaching Jesus. Verse 2 says, Then Uh, Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. He doesn't say you guys have to believe because belief is believing and believing is really good and you're supposed to and you have to and don't ask why. He says uh, that, or it says rather that he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and not just explaining, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, this means that Paul used evidence of fulfilled prophecy in the life of Jesus as a way of demonstrating to Jews who believe the Old Testament that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of that. This is logic and evidence and reasoning. I think that's kind of important. We get this in other places in Acts. And I do have a video where I talk about this in more detail Um where I talk about apologetic methodology. And if you if you Google my name and the phrase apologetic methodology, <laughs> you'll probably pop up. Um, so what I'm gonna suggest is for the first question, Jonathan Koo, is Christianity a faith that should make sense? Yes. Is it just, is just having the faith to believe? Um, I don't think this is an either or situation. Christianity is a faith that does make sense. But let me add one more element to that. And that is the Holy Spirit can reveal to you that Christianity is true. Like you can just know it's true that is not lack of evidence. That is like the best kind of evidence. If God himself speaks to you and you're like, it's not just me feeling it's true. Like God's changed my life. He's transformed me from the inside out. I've experienced a relationship with him. Like these are, now it doesn't prove it to others. You can't tell them, trust me, I feel it. Like that's not what you're doing. I'm just suggesting that that is evidence. If God speaks to you and, you know, in some fashion, that is strong evidence for you at least. It's difficult to use that evidence for others. So when I'm preaching and sharing with others, I use other evidences like fulfilled prophecy, like the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, historically speaking, like the evidence for the unity of the scripture, um, various other things. So so yeah, your second question is how can we believe if one person interprets the Bible this way and another that way? Um, that is a there's questions often have assumptions built into them, right? So this question, it seems to be built on the assumption that I can't come to conclusions if other people disagree about those issues, right? Do you understand that that is the assumption in this question? How can we believe if one person outside of me, they interpret the Bible this way and another the other way? I have three people in my scenario, me and two other people. This guy says A, this guy says B, therefore I have to believe nothing. That's not rational, and the problem with this view is if you if you hold to it, you won't ever believe hardly anything, right? So you'll go. Um, I know that my mom is my mom because she raised me. Yes, well, I over here, person B, I don't believe that she raised you. Oh well, I guess I can't believe that because everyone has to agree with me for me to believe anything. This is this is this is not a safe place to be, rationally speaking. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about interpreting the Bible. Is that you get your own copy (laughs) and so you can read it in context and you have three options right you can agree with person a you can agree with person b or you can have your own opinion based upon your studying of the scripture And if you look at it in context and you read it carefully, you're generally going to be directed well. You even have a fourth option, which is you don't know about that issue. But just because you don't know about, say, maybe you don't know about infant baptism and what we should do about it. Maybe you've heard me talk about it. Someone else talk about it. And you're like, I don't know if Mike's right. Or if if maybe like um, um, Presbyterians are right on this issue. And that's fine. So you say, I withhold judgment on this issue. That doesn't mean you have no faith in Christ because you don't know about infant baptism. These are... You see how I, I want to have a well-reasoned faith? <laughs> These are unreasonable ways to fight belief in Christ. Number 20, last question for today. Independent writer says, Why did God punish all snakes for what Satan did in the Garden of Eden? Um, okay, this is a challenging one for me. <laughs> Because I am on the fence, speaking of being on the fence on issues, I'm on the fence on my understanding of how I'm supposed to interpret the Garden of Eden. This doesn't mean I disbelieve. I believe it's true. There's, a, let me be clear here because there are people who will be triggered by me saying that. So let me try to be clear. Um, I believe it's true. I believe the Genesis account is true. My question is, what was it intending to say in each aspect? and I'm a little confused about what my conclusions are there um, for a number of reasons I won't, I won't get into today. Internal considerations, okay? Now I'm not talking about science and all, the, all that other stuff. So um, let me give you an example. The serpent in the Garden of Eden is Nahash in the Hebrew. This, this it could be a serpent, physical serpent, or it could also be translated shining one that would change your view on this because you would look at the serpent in the garden and you would say, yeah, there's a connection to serpents. There's a connection that's there. But the actual being in the garden was not just a physical serpent. It was it was Satan coming in, in this, this shining one, coming in this form that may have resembled a serpent. And then the curse, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat, relates to serpents. But it could also simply be saying, Satan... You will be grounded. You were. You wanted to be exalted to the highest. Read, you know, Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel twenty-eight. Satan wants to be exalted, a high up. Well, perhaps the the judgment against him is that he will be brought low. He will be humbled, as a snake eats the dirt. So, um, Satan will be cast down and brought low. And this is his fate. His future is to be humiliated before of all before all of creation. Is this the one who deceived the nations? So. All that being said, then the snake, if that if that view is right, and I don't know if it's right, if that view is correct, um, then the snake is not a um, a being that was formerly walking and now crawling on its belly, but rather the snake was always on its belly. It relates to the relates to the form that Satan appeared in the Garden of Eden as, and so God uses that form as a way of illustrating the judgment that will come upon Satan. So so you get what I mean? I'm I'm a little confused on this issue. (laughs) So perhaps others will chime in and bring their clarity here. Um, Just know I'm not doubting the truthfulness of Scripture. I'm I'm trying to understand how to interpret it properly here. Um, All right, y'all. Here's the plan. Monday, I am teaching. (laughs) For better or worse, on the longer ending of Mark and summarizing all the data that I've got. I've spent oh a lot of time, more, much, much more time than I had intended to originally, but the issues got very complicated, partly because I really wanted to read on whether these last 12 verses in Mark, whether, they be, whether they're original or not, whether Mark wrote them, whether they're original or not, and whether they belong in your Bible. Um, I wanted to read a number of authors on this issue, including and especially those who go against the majority of scholars and who say that it does belong in the text of scripture. In the course of reading that, the debates get very complicated. So over the next couple of days, I'm going to be synthesizing all of my many, many, many pages of notes um, on this issue. And I hopefully will present a clear teaching on the topic and offer you at least um, hopefully two things. One, better understanding of the debate and, and, and where we stand on the topic of the ending of Mark, um, what the data looks like better understanding not perfect but better and two a sensical conclusion i hope (laughs) on what we should think about and do about these issues although you're welcome to disagree that's kind of why i want to present the data the way i do is that you would be able to spot my own errors hopefully even if i don't so thank you all very much for joining it's been a great time with you let's say goodbye to the cat Um. She's been pretty affectionate today. She really wants lots of pets. And I'll give her some as soon as I sign off. So thanks for joining me. Lord bless you. Keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. right? Give you courage in this world we're in. Make sure to pray for those going in Afghanistan that are going through all kinds of stuff right now. Please stop and pray for them. And let's look for some ways to help. All right. Take care.